0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: What is it? Hello? Angie. Yes. <laughs> Good afternoon. This is Patrick B. McCoy, the African-American voice of music I'm so sorry we had a technical difficulty. We're now joined by soprano Angela M. Brown. Good afternoon. <laughs> Good afternoon, child. Murphy's Law, Murphy's Law. What can go wrong will go wrong, child. How y'all doing? Let's try to figure out what was going on. So, callers, you may have heard or not heard. We may have had a cross-up in the signals, but that makes it all real. We're joined again by soprano Angela M. Brown, who's going to share with us about her career and how you doing. Oh, I am fine. I am blessed and highly favored. Thank you. <laughs> Well, listen. We this uh-huh. is a better way to start off with how you keep it real. Tell me how you begin doing this program, opera, from a sister's point of view. Well, I started. Uh, funny enough,
2: I was on my way. Oh, I think back in 1996, uh, in the back seat of my agent's car, she was pregnant with her first child. Her husband was driving, and we were riding on our way to New York City so I could do the Birgit Nielsen competition. And um, I was sitting in the back seat just writing down ideas, and I came up with Verdi from a sister's point of view. And later on, uh, I added another soprano, a good friend of mine, Kishna Davis, and we talked about it, and she's a different kind of soprano, so she thought of the name – she thought of opera, so – We became opera from a sister's point of view. And so we did it together for a while. I started it out by myself. Then, like I said, I met Kishna. We did opera from a sister's point of view together for a while. And then my career took off. Her career went a different way. So it got real strange to try to do this together. So I decided just to do it by myself, and I take it on the road now, and it's been very successful.
1: Has a solo now, act. I had a chance. Oh, that's awesome. I had a chance to listen to a recording that you actually did. It's a recording that's available on Amazon. And it was so amazing how you were able to connect to the audience. I know one of the things that you said that when you used to go to operas, you didn't see people that looked like you as far as dress so forth. So I thought that was an interesting point. So what makes it Uh, accessible to all that you can go with stories in opera could you give us like a story in opera that where a character really keeps it real
2: well, I would like to also add a little bit more to that. One of the reasons why I, I do opera, from a Sister's point of view, is just as you say, I didn't see people in the audience as I was sitting on, as I was standing on the stage singing. I could look out in the audience, and it was very monochromatic. So I was like, "Why is it that I don't see people that look like me out there?" So I began to, to do the show and take it into churches and 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 uh, uh, community theaters and community shows and stuff, and. Um, it just took off, and one of the things I do is I demystify opera for audiences that normally wouldn't go. I make it fun. I poke, I poke a lot of fun at it. It's tongue in cheek, and one of the 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 uh, operas that I do often is Tosca. Now, Miss Tosca is an opera diva like myself, and she has found that she's in you know got a couple of dilemmas. She loves hard, and when she hates, she hates just as hard. Well, she's in love with Cabrera Dulce, who is a freedom fighter who is helping a friend escape from prison, and she knows about this. Well, there's a man that's in town named Skopje that, you know, is digging on Miss Tosca, and he's got her boyfriend, and he's torturing Cabrera Dulce, and he says, if you don't give me what I want, tell me what I need to know, I'm going to continue to torture him. And so she says, well, what is it that you want? I'll bribe you. He says, I want you, baby love. I want you for one night. <laughs> Honey, this disgusts Miss Tosca because she can't imagine being with anybody but her lover man, mister Commodore Carver-Dossey. So she decides, you know, and, and I don't think in my estimation of Tosca, she did, because she's a woman that goes to church. She gives her jewels to the Madonna. She sings, and she's praying at one point in the opera, and she's asking, Lord, why are you repaying me like this? But she says, well, you know, Lord, you ain't answering me quick enough, and she says, Mr. Uh, Scorpio, because,
0: <laughs> because she just can't,
2: she can't have that. She can't have that. So, you know, there's a lot of, I have a lot of fun with the opera plots, and though I tell the truth about them. I speak about them in today's vernacular, and we just have a good time on the stage, and it's been received very well.
1: Well, I think that's wonderful. And one thing I really like when you did the last concert was how you brought the fact that I, I Aida was from, of African descent. And even though sometimes you go to the opera and the audience might be a majority Caucasian audience, they're coming and really celebrating an African character, and therefore we should see more of us in the audience as well.
2: Well, as you say, Aida is about two warring African nations, okay? I don't care how many people you paint up. Honey, Egypt and Ethiopia, the last time I checked my map, were in Africa. Okay, so it's about African people. You, in opera, you will find yourself, everybody will find themselves in opera. Like I said, Aida is about African people. Carmen is about Spanish people. Uh, uh, Turandot or uh, Madame Butterfly is about Asian people. Tosca is about Italian people. You will find yourself an opera. You just have to be open enough to
1: open yourself up to go and enjoy. Hmm. Tell me about all that feeling you had when you had your Metropolitan debut in in 2004 in that very role. Baby, you could have bought me
2: with a quarter. Let me tell you, let me catch y'all up on some of the happenings. See, I became a cover at the Metropolitan Opera, and so I was covering the role of of Aida, and there was a, a soprano, and this is before I was contracted to actually do Aida. You know, as, as as my debut, and so there was a soprano that was making her debut, but she had become a little ill, and she had said that she wanted me to sing her zitz probe. I was like, she ain't gonna let me sing her zitz probe in front of all these people. I was like, but whatever. Well, sure enough, she did want me to sing that morning. I dusted my vocal cords off the best I could, and I stood up there and I began to sing all of Aida. I had to sing Aida that morning at eleven, and then I had to sing Aida that evening for my cover rehearsal at three. By Tom I got home, uh, the phone was ringing and my agent was screaming, Angela, Angela, the Met just called and offered you two performances of AIDA and 12 covers for the 2004 season. What did you do? Well, little did I know while I was singing, uh, the Zitz probe that morning, all the people the, high, the people that hire and fire were coming down from upstairs, and they were listening. And, you know, if anybody knows anything about the net that has ever worked there, everything is mic'd, and you can hear what's going on in the different rehearsal rooms. I didn't know this at the time. And evidently the Lord was, was shining on me, and the angels were singing for me, because I was then, you know, I got my debut in 2004. And just to stand on that stage for the very first time, in my debut because I was a cover, remember. So we always did all our rehearsals in the bowels of the net is like what I like to say because we rehearsed everything on sea level And we never got a chance to step on that stage unless we were – filling in for the person that was actually doing it. And uh, my first time ever singing on the Met stage, other than at the National Council auditions in 97, was when I did AIDA. And it looked so, that the stage just looked so vast and intimidating from the audience standpoint. But when you're on that stage, you see how much room you actually got to work with. And it wasn't as big as I thought. And I couldn't see the audience so I was singing to Jesus at night, child. It was dark in the audience, and I just acted like I was the only thing up there. And I gave it to him, and I was like, "Thank you, thank you, Lord." And by the end of that performance, people had flooded down the aisles and stood around the orchestra pit and yelled "bravos" and gave me a standing a uh, bravo's and gave me a standing ovation. And you know, I just stood there and cried because it was just something that I had always dreamed of. This little black girl from Indianapolis, Indiana who didn't know she had this dream, and it was coming true.
1: My God. So when your career started moving into this this direction of opera, what was your family's reaction?
2: Oh, they were – my my family has always been very, very supportive of my musical career because I – Started off singing in my grandfather's church when I was five. And then uh, my mother, uh, you know, and father's always encouraged me to perform. I sang at the opening of an envelope in Indianapolis, Indiana. Child, you always heard about Angie singing over here at this church. Angie's going to be on TV singing for this little afternoon, you know, news program or something. I was always in the public eye and singing. So when it came to opera, they didn't know what the end was going to be, and neither did
1: I, but they were very supportive of me through it all. Even though you were singing as a child at these different events, did you ever have any aspirations towards another career other than music or opera?
2: You know, for a while, I, I thought that I would want to be a child psychologist or a nurse and it only took one time for me to volunteer in the hospital to realize I wasn't cut out to be a nurse. I uh, was more cut out to be a receptionist and guide people to the nurses. Because child, when I had to go into a room and, and change an adult diaper, uh, empty a bedpan, or something like that, I said, "This ain't for me. Charlotte. This ain't for me." Mm -mm. I was like, give me a pad and a pencil. I'll I'll be a secretary. So I actually did go to school to be, uh, you know, to uh, be a secretary. But, of course, that wasn't for me either. The Lord was just leading me and guiding me because my father always said, baby, you need something to fall back on, you know. So uh, I I, I can type. (laughs) And when I was in school, it was shorthand. But Mother Show didn't go the nursing route. But uh, I love to talk and listen to people. So I've always fancied myself. You know, being a bit of a counselor sometimes, I thought that would be something I would go into.
1: And I think that's a very good skill to have. Now, a lot of people yeah. when I talk to them, when I ask them about their parents, they say that their parents had a musical background. But in my reading, I understand that your your family has an tension uh, towards the visual arts. Because you maybe talk about some of your other siblings.
2: Yes, I had two siblings. My youngest sibling passed away in 85, but my oldest brother, George Brown, is the senior art director at Indiana University, Purdue University at Indianapolis. We fondly call it Ui Pooey or I-U-P-U-I, here in Indianapolis. And uh, he is a great visual artist. And my mother, uh, the late Freddie Mae Brown, she had an actual business here in Indianapolis called Artistry Gifts. And she would do uh, portraits by photograph, either pet portraits or people portraits. And she could actually take two pictures of, you know, your mother or your father's two favorite photos you would have and put them together and make them look like they were uh, actually in the same room at the time they were taken. And she was very talented that way. So, And she was also a singer because when she was growing up, uh, she had a scholarship to Jordan School of Music here at Butler University. And they thought she would be the next Marian Anderson, even though she was a soprano and Marian Anderson was a contralto. Marian Anderson was the only thing we, as people of color, had to look up to as far at that time in the um, uh, classical arts. So they thought she would be the next Marian Anderson. So I got my music from my mom, and my
1: brother got his art from my mom. That is amazing. Now, just when in all these experiences that you've had in singing operatic roles, what are some of the steps for a person who may be aspiring to be an opera singer or who may not know about opera? What are some of the key things that you do to prepare for an operatic role? Well, I'm going to go a little further in that question because first I'm going to say
2: regardless of the operatic role, you've got to have a passion for this. If you are not willing to do this For little to no pay, you are in the wrong business, boo. Okay? Because right now, in this economy, it's about, yeah, you know, things might have been rolling and and, and fantastic a couple of years ago. Now you're finding that you got to come off of these fees if you want to work because everybody is suffering. So, you got to have that passion first. Now, in preparing for an operatic role, what I tend to do, okay, I'm just gonna keep it real with you, honey. Go become a secretary or a doctor if you want to be rich, 'cause this ain't it, okay. Um, but and in, in, as I prepare for operatic roles, I uh, find that I find really good recordings and videos first, just so that I can, you know, wet my teeth, especially if it's a role I'm very unfamiliar with and I'm not sure what's expected. I you know, go to the library and I do my research first. Then I'll take it to um, my my uh, coach accompanist, and we will sit down and we'll hash out each note and each phrase, and I will sing it. And if I have, find myself having the time, I will then fly to see my teacher, Virginia Zayani. I still work with her, even though she's retired. Uh, I'll I'll fly down to Florida and I'll sing through some of the roles that I'm working with. And she will uh, teach me and coach me through them. And then it's just a matter of singing, 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 until you are actually sleeping and hearing this music in your sleep. That's when you know you got it, you know. And then um, hopefully you're ready for the the, the orchestra and the conductor, and you go and you put it together with your colleagues.
1: Hmm. So that's some sound advice for all those listeners out there who are aspiring musicians. That was some definite key advice for you. Now, talk to me about Oakwood College or Oakwood University as it is now. That school has a, a, a legacy of producing some great musicians, and you're one of them. Could you maybe talk about the role of Oakwood in your career? Well, Oakwood College, or excuse me, Oakwood University now, Um
2: was a godsend for me. I didn't realize, like I said, that I had this vision or this um, this, this this ability to sing classical music. Uh, Oakwood is a uh, is a um, Seventh Day Adventist college, and I became Seventh Day Adventist Adventist back in 1985. And so then I wanted to go and learn more about music. I wanted to be a gospel singer, or a gospel recording artist. And, like I said, I had never i had touched all genres of music. I did a lot of musical theater here in Indianapolis a lot. I did a lot of gospel singing back in the, in the uh mid early to mid eighties with that's when gospel choirs were in their heyday, you know the Walter Hawkins and the Thomas Whitfields and all uh, that's when you know gospel music was was really in its heyday, uh, and Richard Smallwood and all that, and the big choirs. So I sung a lot with different choirs. So when I became an Adventist, I went to Oakwood just so that I could learn more about music and just be more intelligent in the studio. I never knew that opera was going to bite me because As I say, opera chose me. I didn't choose it because I never wanted to be a screechy, quote-unquote, soprano. So when I got to Oakwood College at the time, now university, I um, was uh, assigned a teacher, and her name was Ginger Beasley. Well, little did I know is that Ginger Beasley uh, was going to be the person that really started me moving into the classical realm because she was, and she also had a connection with Indiana University where I went to do my graduate. my graduate studies, and she was a student of Virginia Zayani. So there was a big marriage between Oakwood College at the time and Indiana University, and my teacher, Ginger Beasley, at Oakwood would take her studio to Indiana University, and we would have master classes with Mrs. Zayani. So if it wasn't for an Oakwood College, now university, in my life, coming in my life when it did... I don't think I would be where I am today, or I would have taken definitely a different route to get here.
1: That is awesome. Now this next question I'm gonna ask, you know that we tend to be always wanna be in somebody's business. We know it's the little least little thing about somebody. We want to know That's what happened or what did you do and this mm-hmm. type of thing. So so I wanna talk about when you when you first started out you were a certain way physically and now you you look a total different way and we could say your pitches. Talk to me about your transition as far as why did you choose to slim down as far as your career is concerned.
2: Messy, 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 Patrick. You ain't supposed to be in my business like that. You ain't supposed to do it. But I tell you what I will share. All of my life, I have struggled with weight. All of my life. And I was not brought up to think I was less than or to sit around and cry about it. I hate some of these weight shows where they're like, oh, I've always worked on it. Okay, that's just me. I'm, I mean, I'm still a big girl. Okay, but honey, if I get on the scale in my doctor's office, they'll be like, obese, oh, Ms. Brown, get it together. You know? So, I have always, always struggled with my weight. When I was one, when I was five, Okay, now I'm telling y'all. I'm telling the world my business. Okay. When I was five, I was. I've always been kind of tall for my age, but I was 120 pounds when I was five. When I was 12, I weighed 210 pounds, and when I graduated high school, I was 263 pounds, and I hit 300 pounds three or four times in my adult life, and I just couldn't take it anymore my my struct. what i could carry at 22 i could no longer carry at 40 something had to be done i had gotten to the point where i was desperate i had i had done weight watchers i had been on a diet since i was five okay and at the time maybe i don't even think when when i started dieting it was called weight watchers it might have been a whole different uh uh, uh, organization, but I was in Weightless Wonders, child. Okay, we go back to Weightless <laughs> Wonders and, and and Tab and Fresca. I hope Tab and Fresca to this day because I mean it just reminds me of you know. The, the things that I had to endure, I mean, remember the pants? No, you don't remember. I remember these pants, these these double-knit pants that had the seam in it already sewn. I had to wear stuff like that. I looked like a little, very settled woman, At as, as, you know, when I was a young girl. I never could go into the stores and find the cute clothes and all that. But even though I had to go through all of that, my parents and my mama Everybody always taught me how to carry myself. Honey, I could carry my little weight. you hear me? Mm. My mother used, um, when I was five, I remember her saying, now stand up straight, suck your stomach in, and pull your shoulders back because we don't want you to have that little what I call the fat girl waddle because you see some of the young girls, because they don't know how to carry their weight. They have this right. little waddle thing. It's because they don't know how to line it up, and it's what it's called the dancer's lift. And I will say that even today, because I am a singer, when you're pulling in your stomach or or just 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 um, standing straight, all of that took me back to my mom. Because when I say the side aisle at my granddaddy's church was like a runway for me. When I would go to the bathroom, she'd be like, "Now suck your stomach in." I always had a strut on me, honey. I could carry this weight. Well, <laughs> like I said, it got to a point period no more so i made the decision to have gastric bypass now people say how did you lose your weight i said diet exercise and i have a tool that helps me and it's called gastric bypass because as i I had a lot i do a lot of emotional eating as you can hear i don't seem to be a retiring shy person but i have my moments and you know everybody seeks out for comfort at times in their life. And food was definitely a comfort to me, child, because right now I'm hungry. I'm like, nah, nah. I need me something. <laughs> but it's because I'm hungry, not because <laughs> – don't stop talking. It's because I'm hungry, not because I am trying to stuff something down. So I learned to talk. I learned to express myself uh, when you uh, are are seeking this type of help. Because, like I said, I had surgical help. You know, they take they take you through all of the, the psychological reasons why you overeat or why. Because I wasn't an overeater. I would eat and go to sleep. Because those are my two mm. favorite pastimes, child. I could lay down. I would get the itis. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and uh, uh don't go there. Don't go there. My <laughs> other brothers and sisters don't know what you're talking about. Don't worry about it. It's all right. Mm. Baby, ain't nothing like having a Thanksgiving meal unbuttoning that top. button. And going to sleep. And that was my thing. I wasn't real physically active, but now I am. And I realize as you get older, that's just I don't care. I didn't have any diabetes. I didn't have markers. I didn't have any high blood pressure. No markers. But my knees was hurting, child after that first Aida I did here in Indianapolis baby mother was falling down on her knees and stuff. And let me tell you something, singers. Honey, I don't care if you're fat, skinny, small, whatever. Put some knee pads on. You ain't that fabulous. Honey, all you girls out there doing Porgy and best and y'all Bess, and they slinging you around on that stage. Honey, tell them to make your dress just a little longer so you can wear some knee pads. Because, honey, there's going to come a day where your knees will hurt. And ain't nothing about falling down on your knees. Take care of yourself. Protect yourself well mother didn't do that and so I because of my weight and the fact that I was you know I had to be physical on stage but wasn't very physically active off stage I was having knee problems and so I really wanted to help myself so I didn't have gastric bypass to have a career because it was going to come a time where you can have the most beautiful voice in the world And uh, if you are so heavy that even the fat people are going, damn, she's big. Okay. I mean, when the big people, when you got other big boned colleagues going, you know what? She makes it makes it hard for me to breathe to watch you on stage. You ain't got no career no way because ain't nobody gonna call you. So it, it was all about health, all about health. So I don't push. Gastric bypass. I am not the poster child for gastric bypass. It helped me. You gonna have to search for yourself, but it definitely helped me, and I am able to step into other roles. And yes, I do feel like I even have more confidence. And I was a. Anybody that knows me knows I was very confident. But I'm gonna just be honest with you. There's just so much big hair, jewelry, and makeup, and fabulous long flowing big boats of fabric because that's what it was that you could put on. Honey, sometimes you just got to get real and say, Lord, help me, cut me and help me. So that's what I did. I laid on that table, Patrick, because, you know, in the operating room, they lay you out in the cough form. I said, Okay, I take that as a hint, Lord Jesus, that you gonna be with me. I said, Hit the doc with the with the uh with the stuff to make me go to sleep and cut me and I was fine. You know, so I came out more than a conqueror. That's not everybody's ex- uh, experience with this particular surgery. I don't advocate it, but if it's something that somebody needs to do, you need to just think about it, pray about it, talk to your friends and family. And I will say, I didn't talk to everybody because people are afraid for you, and then people don't want it. Some people don't want to see you succeed That's and be it. happy. You know, so you can't talk up all your stuff to everybody because somebody's going to discourage you and you're going to be real scared. And, and while you're being scared, you emotional eating, eating them Twinkies and still getting fat and can't breathe while you trying to learn ARIA. You, need, you just need to be real with yourself. Okay, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. You know, I so that's right. I, I did what I had to do for me, for me. And I didn't even tell my, I didn't really tell my family until like a week before I was having the surgery, just so that nobody would read about me if it didn't go well. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, why did she do that? And I, I was like, I'm just saying, I need y'all's prayers. Church, pray for me. I, I and then I cut the phone off. You know, I had blinders on because I knew I was going to do what the doctor told me to do when I got up. You can't have something like this that reroutes your whole insides and not do what the doctor tells you to do. You know, you can't go off on your own because it's a total different way of life. And I have to take a lot of vitamins. I have to always get my blood work checked. But I I have to say, if I had to do it again, I would do it again. For me, it worked out.
1: Did I answer your question, baby? Oh, my God, and thank you because I know personal friends who have gone this this same journey, and I'm sure that this has spoke directly to them, and it has really blessed them. So thank you so much for sharing it. But I want to ask you one mm-hmm. question because uh, uh, I know a lot of people want to know this too. Did you mm-hmm. find that the quality of your voice changed after the procedure?
2: Yes, and I think it changed for the better. Now, I will mm-hmm. say in the very beginning, because I had the surgery, and a month later, I was on a plane going to Africa to sing Aida. And while I'm standing up on that stage, that first that first high note, El you Vincitor, baby, I had to hold on because I was just as dizzy as I could be. Your body is going through a whole lot of changes. And, yeah, because the, the voice did change because you have to relearn how to support again. And the reason why I say that is because if you're used to hoisting your ribs up and you got 300 pounds laying on your ribs, when you become 100, 150 pounds lighter, you don't have to use that same strength. You see what I'm saying? So it just makes sense that your voice would change. And like I said, I think it changed for the better. Uh, the voice is lighter. It still has that dramatic uh, uh, depth. I'm still a dramatic soprano, but it's higher. It's more. It's effortless now, to where people say, "Well, it didn't look like you were working." I said, "Because I had this whole shield of flesh around that you couldn't see that I was working hard." You know, so it's less of me now, and it's easier. Things became easier for me, but I will say I stayed with my teacher, and I worked on it. This ain't something you go do and not go back and and get a tune-up, you know. Mm. So, yes, it did change, but I think it changed for the better. Of course, I'll have my critics that will say whatever, and I say whatever to them. Yeah, long as <laughs> long as whatever. okay, long as my contracts are written in ink <laughs> and not pencil or erasable ink, then I'm all right. I'm all right with it, you know. But I feel good, and I, and 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 yes, the voice did change, but it changed for the better. And you have to continue to work. Don't ever think you can rest on your laurels or on the praises of the past, because yes. The New York Times might have said, at last, an AIDA, but that was in 2004. We're in 2011. It's time to have some more headlines. You know, you got to keep mm. keep it moving. Keep it moving.
1: That is awesome. That is so awesome. Hey, listen, let me just bring this point. You look fierce. Let's just bring it out, too. But I <laughs> want to know that when the, <laughs> when the people saw your new pictures, because you have some glamorous new pictures that reflect these changes, Uh What are some of the responses of some of your haters that perhaps were not as flattering when you were larger? Well, you know, let me say this, Patrick, and it's
2: not that I live in a bubble, okay? I want to say that. But because I know I have haters, nobody, I mean, I didn't love Jesus, okay? But I choose not to go because if you seek, you will find. And I choose not to go and seek out my haters because normally they come to you. So, mm-hmm. if anyone has said anything negative, positive, whatever. I mean, of course I've, I've had a lot of glowing reports about the pictures. Yeah. And I like what I see, you know. Uh I feel good. What you see is a reflection of I feel good about me. God is good. I feel like I have a, a mm-hmm. even brighter glow now. Um I mean cuz before I was fierce. Okay, let's let, <laughs> let's just say that. I was fierce before. I just couldn't breathe as well and I couldn't walk as good. But, you know, now I just I just I've 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 unzipped the old me, you know. And let's and let me make this real clear too, Patrick. Diet and exercise are important to do for the rest of your life because once you heal up and that weight stops magically falling off guess what it magically comes back on and it's not so much magic because it's those extra portions you putting in your mouth so with all my wetted lifts that I done had I done put on 13 pounds shut up y'all don't hate squad. don't judge me um so I'm I'm working it out now and I done lost six and I'm gonna get the mother uh seven off you know but, um, it's something that you have to work at all the time, but, as far as my pictures and haters, I don't seek that out. I never try to seek out the uh negative, and I don't seek out the positive, but uh, it does come to you and If I can be a blessing or a like to somebody else with the positivity that they see about me,
1: then great, great. And let's move right to that wonderful wedding. And I want to say, <clears throat> excuse me, thank you for sharing that part of your life with me in print. And I want to just talk about it now on the air. Talk to us about this wonderful wedding in Paris.
0: Oh, you know.
1: My husband's
2: name is Anselm Blaise Arjulier And we met at the Paris Opera at the Bastille. And let me tell you how God works. I auditioned for the role of Amelia back in, I want to see, it. I'm bad with dates. Let's see. Oh, I want to say it had to be 2006. I auditioned for that role, and I had a cold that day. I caught a cold right before the audition, flying over there and everything. And I thought it was really a terrible audition. I really, really did. But I ended up getting the role. And so I was engaged to call, to go and do my Paris opera debut uh, in 2008, I think. I'm bad with dates, y'all. I'm bad with dates uh 2008 and then I went back in 2009 I think it was or either it was 2007 and 2009 or 8 or something anyway um I went over the first time and he was otherwise occupied he had a relationship and I had a relationship but he was in the show Blaze that's what I call him Blaze is a dancer by profession uh, and he used to dance, uh, uh, do backup dancing with um, Janet Jackson and some other uh, famous people. He's done on some TV, and he was in a traveling troupe that traveled America and all that. But now he is an elite security guard and DJ in Paris. So he's really good at what he does. And he still works at the Paris Opera. So he was actually in the scene as Ulrika's imp, or the young man, the guy that goes and puts, anybody knows anything about Balo? He puts the, the message in Silvano's pocket to make what Ulrika had uh, prophesied about him come true. And, and this was a really different production of Balo that we won't get into. At any rate, we were in the same production. He was otherwise occupied, and so was I. When I came back to reprise the role of Amelia, and, and and I must say, he was the only one that spoke to me in English, that found enough English to speak to me before I sang, okay? Everybody else was holding judgment if they were going to speak to me in English. If anybody goes to French, y'all understand what I'm saying. But, <laughs> they ain't just coming up to you, wrapping their arms around you, talking about, hi, Sabah, bonjour, hello. They're looking at you going, mm-hmm, let's see what you're going to do. So after I sang, then everybody, you know, started to speak. But he actually spoke to me before. And so then the second time I went back, he was hoping that he would see me, and we did see each other. And I'm skipping over a lot of things. And um, so we we started to to date a little bit while we're in Paris. And he was otherwise – he had finished with his relationship and I had finished with mine, so we were both free. And – to make a long story short, he started skyping me, and then he came over to Vienna when I did my Vienna Start debut, and uh, that's when the love affair began, and we've been together ever since, and we got married April twenty second, two thousand eleven. This past on Good Friday, this past Good Friday, uh, and we had decided that we would do uh, the Paris in Fran- I mean, the Paris in France, the marriage in Paris, because. Uh We just wanted to do something quick and not so expensive because we would have had to fly his whole family over here for a big, you know, wedding over here, and then I was working a lot, and it just got to be too complicated. Well, actually – Blaze said, it. well, it's just, and it still ended up being complicated because anytime you're marrying somebody uh, internationally, you got lots of paperwork. I don't care how you slice it. This was going to be a hot mess regardless, and we were both very busy. So we decided to get married in Paris, and uh, we Skyped my family in. <laughs> so we actually had some pictures of my brother and his family. Oh, hello. Mm-hmm. I'm scared. Hello. Okay, uh-huh. something, said. you're now in the host queue. I'm like, Wait a minute <laughs> so um we, we 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 skyped everything, actually, blaze planned the whole wedding um we uh I got my dress and everything. Uh, I planned everything as I was traveling. So I actually went to David's Bridal. I looked on online to see the kind of dress that I wanted. We I wanted a short dress because my mother always had a short had a short dress when she got married. So I always wanted that. I wanted a Doris Day kind of look, but he wanted me in a more streamlined, you know, uh, a slimmer look because he loves my legs. And so. Um, <laughs> So anyway, I ended up with a short dress that I got from David's Bridal, and the headpiece came from David's Bridal, and he loves vintage-looking things. So he wanted the slim-cut suit. So our wedding looks very 50-ish, 50-ish kind of way. And so I had my bouquet made in Lexington, Kentucky, by a lady that I met who was actually my masseuse, and she was also a florist. And we got to talking while she was massaging me. And I was like, well, uh, can you make my bouquet? She was like, yeah. I said, well, how much would that cost? And she says, if you buy the materials, it won't cost you anything. So she actually made my, my bouquet and my boutonniers and everything for free. It was just a blessing. And it was just meant to be. Everything, when it came to that wedding and by it being in Paris, it just flowed. It was clockwork. It was not a problem. Except for the day of the wedding, our photographer, couldn't come and so I was like well don't worry about it baby we got enough cameras around here to uh, take enough pictures and then all of a sudden he comes running up out of the metro station and starts clicking away at the pictures you know so I mean it was just a magical day it was warm it was Gorgeous, because the next day I think it rained cats and dogs, but it was a gorgeous, beautiful day, and I'm just as happy as I can be. A lot of people ask, you know, well, are you going to be living in Paris? Are you going to change your name? What's going to happen? And I say, whatever the Lord wants to happen, because my name is still Brown, though so I am uh for because I'm, I am established. We are grown. Um, <laughs> it, right now, it's not, you know, right now, I mean, because of my career, Brown is the best way because nobody would know who Angela R. Juvier is, you know. So it, we thought it best that I keep my maiden name. And um, I, we are going between Paris and uh, America now. So, And actually it helps for me to have, you know, a place there and a place here. So uh, I'm waiting on him to come, and we're going to uh here to America for the, the end of July, and we're going to go on our honeymoon, and we are um, going to have a reception here in Indianapolis with a few close friends and family.
1: Oh, wow, 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 wow. So talk about some of your recent engagements and your calendar ahead. <sighs> you know, this is always where I get a little
2: fuzzy. Recent, because I can never remember my calendar, and you could probably look at my calendar right now and tell me what's up. Um, I, I Right now I'm doing a lot of um, concerts. I do my opera from a sister's point of view. I do have my CD that just came out by the same name, opera from a sister's point of view, that you can get on um, Amazon, and you can get it on the uh, com and you can get it on iTunes. And... Um, I am right now formulating that and and augmenting, you know, my um, schedule for concerts of that. But I'm going to be doing AIDA in Hamburg in October. So I'm preparing for that. And I'll be going out. I'm going to jump all around. I'm going to be going out to Sun Valley Writers' Conference in um, Sun Valley, Idaho. It's a big writers' conference that they have, very important prestigious writers' conference that they have. Uh, every year and I'm going to be the, the former for that and uh, I'm trying to think my agent is calling me now probably trying to tell me something baby I can't click over I can't click over right now <laughs> Janet uh let's see uh <laughs> oh lord uh that's just, you we know, know like said, we'll think about so, that. Yeah, <laughs> I give yeah, people my uh, my website. hmm
1: <laughs> And <laughs> they can look me up. www.angela www.angelambrown.com, dot <laughs> you go to the website, and I also would like to play right now a clip from her recent CD, "Opera from a Sister's Point of View." Just to, let's take a listen to this a little bit just now. Hello? Yeah. Uh, it, it it didn't play.
2: It didn't play. It's now see you making 90s. people come on
1: now.
2: <laughs> it's it's his equipment, not my not not me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it does let's see. My goodness. I don't see Don't this. you love live stuff. I know I do. Yes, we, we got all fumbled mm-hmm. up in the beginning. Let's see, um Sister, do you, do you have your computer? Do you hear anything? Let me see. Can I go to this? Oh, uh, let me see, Mr.
2: Patrick. What you got going on here?
1: But at any rate, callers, you can mm-hmm. uh, purchase this CD, uh, the CD out from a sister's point of view um, on Amazon.com. Let's try this again and see what happens.
2: Now, I can hear you talking on my computer, and
1: we're delayed on the computer. Oh, okay. Uh, well, good. So at, least, at least we know we're on the air. Yeah, you're on the air. Because, good. Well, call it just me. While well, I do want to uh, take a moment to apologize, even though we're having a lot of fun on this call, I do want to go back and, and give a little bit of a proper introduction uh, to the show, of course, you know that today we're talking with soprano Angela M Brown, and Angela M Brown personifies the ideal American dramatic soprano: sheer vocal power, luxurious finesse, shimmering high pianissimo, and a charming personality larger than life. Her highly successful Metropolitan Opera debut in 2004 sparked a media excitement with reviews from the New York Times. At last, an aria. Proclaimed by the New York Times, the Associated Press, she combines a potent desk, lore register with a striking ability to spin out soft high notes of shimmering beauty. There's no doubt her voice is powerful enough for Verity. So she's had many accomplishments. Of course, you heard me speak of Oakwood College. Just before we get off the air, Angela, was there anything that you might want to close out to tell the listeners?
2: Well, um just that you can find my my CD and also I have another CD out uh entitled Mosaic and it's a CD of African American spirituals with guitar and piano and you can find that on iTunes as uh as well as amazon.com and allthenewrecords.com and uh just working on some other projects um Uh, Actually, I have a photo shoot today for a talent agency because I'm like, while I am uh, here for the summer. I may as well parlay all this into something. So I'm interested in commercials. And if anybody wants me to endorse something from lipstick to preparation age, baby, call a sister. Call a sister.
0: (laughs)
1: Well, thank you so much, Andy, to be on this call with us. And I'm going to close I close the um, after show with an excerpt from your uh, mosaic album with Undecent Moors, Watch and Pray. And meanwhile, I hope you have a good day.
2: Thank you so much, Patrick. Take
1: care. Okay. All right. Bye
2: bye. All right. Bye bye.
1: Again, listen to Angela M. Brown, and on the next broadcast, we'll have the opportunity to embark on the iTunes in America series with bass baritone Mark S. Doss, followed by an interview on July the 6th with Dr. Andre J. Thomas. So that's July 5th with Mark S. Doss, and July 6th with Dr. Andre J. Thomas. This is Patrick B. McCoy, the African-American voice of classical music. I do apologize for the Rocky start. To interview, but technical difficulties do happen. I do encourage you to follow the show on Facebook and also on Twitter at Patrick D. McCoy at Twitter. This is Patrick D. McCoy, the African American voice of classical music. We do wish you a great day.